At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign overall. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. This morning we have the opportunity to dive into God's Word together. So if you have a Bible or electronic device, I want to encourage you to take it out and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 this morning. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you felt fear? I don't have to answer that out loud, but I want you to to go back into your Rolodex of memories and think back when was the last time you felt fear? Maybe, or another way of asking it, if, if you are going to experience the emotion of fear, what are you most likely to be afraid of? What is it that really kind of grips your heart or gets you to the place of of just not knowing, and you, you feel it deeply, and you worry. Well, for me, there are really, like right now in this season of my life, there are three areas that if I'm going to be gripped with fear, that fear comes as I fear for my family. Right? When, I, when I fear the, the choices that they make, or the things that happen to them, or the things that might happen to them, very fearful towards that. I'm fearful about finances, right? If you're watching the stock market and other things like that, you're like, hey, when I retire, is there going to be anything? Uh, so that's one of the areas, you know, that if I'm going to be afraid, I'm, I'm afraid of that. And the third area in my life is, is really the future, right? I don't know the future. I, I don't know what's going to happen next week. And there's lots of things to be afraid of in the future. But fear is a real reality. And here's the thing that the feeling of fear is actually a gift. I don't know if you ever realized that or not. Fear is a gift because it reminds us that we are needy people. It reminds us that we are seeking security. We're seeking refuge. We need someone to come alongside us and let us know it's going to be okay. Right, so fear is a gift. But here's the thing about the super powerful emotion is that when we experience fear, it puts us in a very precarious position because when you feel fear, you can't be neutral about it. Fear is one of those emotions that you can't just experience and be like, okay, it doesn't bother me. It's okay. Everything's gonna be all right. No, when you feel fear, you have to choose to go one or of two directions. First, the bad direction, I, I, I think, that we can talk about fear is that when we feel fear, our negative response to that is to try and control it. 
right? We see the situation that's out there and we're like, no, I gotta step in this thing. I gotta fix this thing. And when we try to do that, what happens is that it engages anxiety inside of us because we realize I really can't control this. I can't control the stock market. I can't control my kids. I can't control my boss. I can't control this world. And actually, I'm out of control. Right? I, had, I have no power to fix this. And then that causes anxiety. Because we're like, okay, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't fix this. I'm afraid, but I can't do anything about it. And then if we allow that to take it to its end, you know where that ends? It ends in rage. Because we get so frustrated and so angry about the things of this world that we know that the life is swirling out of control and we just get so angry about it. Now that is the negative side of fear that I know many of us walk in. We, we live this anxiety-ridden, control-driven kind of life. But that's not living in the gift of fear. So the gift of fear is this. The gift of fear is faith. Faith is the gift of fear. Where we come before to another, we come to some other, and we say, hey, I'm afraid of this situation. Especially when we come to God, the one who is able to give us wisdom in the midst of our fear, and he's able to give us the safety and the security that we desire. I mean, think about all the times in, in Psalms where we see the hand of God being our strong tower. Right, the hand of God is our strong tower. We're hidden under the wings of our God. What a mighty fortress is our God, an ever-present help in time of danger. Right, God says, I want to be with you in your fear. I don't want you to be alone in your fear. I don't want you to come over here where you're anxiety-ridden, but I want you to walk in fear in me. Oh, there's a gift of fear. And today what I want us to see is we walk through and we continue our series, look, walking through Daniel as we're looking at this class of cultures. We're gonna see how two groups of people deal with fear. We're gonna look at the worldly way of deal dealing with fear and we're gonna look at the wise way of dealing with fear as we've been walking through um, the first six chapters of Daniel. And if you're just here, you're here for the very first time or, or you haven't been a part of this series, let me get you caught up to speed at where we're at in Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. We see there were God's people had been living a life of disobedience and God's sovereign power steps in. And he raises up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire to come and take God's people captive. So he comes to Jerusalem, ransacks the people there and takes them all the way over to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's ruling and reigning, and a part of these captives were some young men, four young men to be exact, Daniel and his three friends, which we've been walking through in this series. We've been seeing two things as we've been walking through this series. First of all, we've been looking at the fact that God is sovereign over all things. That even though you walk through painful lives, even though you might find yourselves in captivity, God is still in control of all things. And God causes kingdoms to rise and fall by his very power. So God is completely sovereign. The second thing we've been seeing is that it is possible for us to live holy lives as we walk through a hostile culture. It is possible for us to thrive 
and to live holy lives in the midst of a hostile culture. And that's what we see with these young men as they, in the beginning, they choose to refuse to eat unholy food. We see God blesses them there. And then last week, we see that God allows Daniel to know and interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream. Remember his dream, in his dream he saw a mighty statue that had a head of gold, a chest that was silver, um, a belly that was bronze, lengths that were iron, feet that were iron and clay mixed together. And Daniel says this, this is a, what is coming is that Babylon is the head of gold, but there's going to come a nation after that that's going to be even greater but of less value. And we see moving on down that there's more and more nations that will rise up after Babylon. But then apart from that, there was this stone, this mighty stone that is going to thrash it all to the ground. And that stone represents Almighty God. And so Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar and not only inter- or tells him what his dream was, he interprets his dream. And Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 47. He says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. King Nebuchadnezzar has to step back for a moment and he marvels at Daniel's God. But something mighty happens between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 for this message that comes to Nebuchadnezzar allows him to see his end. Nebuchadnezzar knows that he is not going to, and his kingdom is not going to last forever. There is a time stamp and a time date when his kingdom ends. And that there will be another kingdom, and another kingdom, and another kingdom. And then all of these kingdoms are going to bow to the greatest kingdom. And so what does that do to Nebuchadnezzar? It invokes deep fear. He is afraid of his end. And we begin chapter 3, as we're going to begin in just a moment, we see that in chapter 3, Daniel's not present. Daniel's been one of the major movers so far in the book of Daniel. We don't know exactly. Scholars uh, assume that Daniel's been sent away by the king to do some business in another land, so he's not present at chapter 3. But something happens in chapter 3 that's pretty crazy. The the shift moves away from Daniel to his three friends that came with him. And in this passage today, we're going to see fear and faith completely contrasted. And today, I want to propose to you the big idea is that courageous faith rejects idolatrous worship. Courageous faith rejects idolatrous worship. How do we do that? How do we reject idol idol worship? I think there are three ways that we can do that. The first we're going to see in our text is that we're called to reject cultural idolatry. Reject cultural idolatry. Look at me in verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providences to come to the dedication of the image that the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the providence gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music... All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have pointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's a lot. We're going to get through this whole chapter today, all right? So stick with me. I'll get you out in time for the big game today. But in our account today, what we see, that it begins with King Nebuchadnezzar living out of his fear. Right? What does he do? He just gets a word from the Lord, specifically, that there's, his kingdom is coming to an end. And so what does he do? I know what I'll do. I'll show that my greatness will stand forever. And so what does he do? He builds a 90-foot tower or a 90-foot image that is 90 foot tall and about nine feet wide. So it's think not like a big, 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 huge body, but think more like the Washington Monument, right? Something that's super tall and super skinny. And we don't know exactly what was on there, if it was his image on there or if it was image of another god. But whatever it is, we see King Nebuchadnezzar trying to control the situation. He's stepping in and he's saying, okay, I'm going to prove God wrong. So he makes an idol in an attempt to exercise his power over God. He's trying to not make his, re- his nightmare a reality. He's trying to escape all of that by something that he can manage. He can't manage the future. He can't manage life after his death, but he can set himself up so that everyone will remember him. And so he builds this mighty thing. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to declare superiority to everyone. And so what he's trying to do is unite everyone in the land under one religion. The purpose to craft this image to be a loyalty test to all that come. What he wants to do is control everybody. Not only does he want to control the situation, he wants to control people. So he wants to exert his power and his authority because he knows he's losing it. And so he's scrapping for it. And so in his fear, he's like, okay, everyone's going to bow to me. Everyone's going to bow to the image that I have made, and I'm going to unite everyone. And anyone that does not bow down, we will be able to visibly see that they are a threat 
to his empire. And he gives them this warning that anyone that does not bow down will be burned in the fire. And as we see what happens is the call goes out and people come and the music gets played and people just start bowing down and they're bowing down. And for many of the people, they, the, the culture of Babylon was so synchronistic, meaning that they, it was a conglomeration of a bunch of different beliefs that what's one more God? What's one more God to bow down to? We bow to this God, we bow to this God, we bow to this God. I'll bow to any God. Just don't kill me. And so everyone's bowing and everyone's like, okay, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal, no big deal. But then you come to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their faith is tested because they are faced with fear. Right? If we don't bow down, like they got pressure all around them. If we don't bow down, then we've got the king who's going to kill us. And if we do bow down, then we've got God who's disappointed in us, whom we just disobeyed. And so they're living in this place where they're stepping into fear as well. And it wasn't anything that they had done, but this was done to them. And so now they have to, they're challenged in their faith. What do we do? Do we bow or do we refuse? We know that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego understood God's word and it would be a direct defiance of God's law for them to bow. For Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. You can't be any more clear, right? God can't be any more clear in what he desires and what he demands of his people. You shall have no other gods before me. Nebuchadnezzar rises up and says, bow to this God. And as you can see that it's not like there's no gray here. It's, there's no gray. This is purely black and white. The issue before you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're either going to bow or you're not. Choose whom you are, who your master is. Choose who you worship. And here's the cool thing about this. They choose in their hearts not to bow. And when they do, they don't make a big fuss about it. Right? Their obedience is on display, but it's kind of like they're not trying to be subversive and everything. They're not walking around in a big old parade trying to say, hey, look at us. We're revolting against the king. No, they just do it in quietness and silence. They choose not to draw attention to themselves. But of course, they do draw attention to themselves. Because when you live for God, your life will be distinguished from those around you. Your life looks different. These men choose to walk in courageous faith when faced with fear. They will not bow down to cultural idolatry. These men were in a weird place. Imagine the scene, right? You're, you're called together, so you're there, and then all of a sudden the horns go off and you see everyone bowing down, everyone bowing and you're the only one standing, only three of you, and the whole crowd, only three of you are not bowing. The peer pressure was real. Everyone else was doing it. Everyone else was doing it, except for them. I remember as a a kid, when like a new pair of sneakers or something would come out, I'd always go to my mom and I'm like, hey mom, can I get these new pair of sneakers? And she's like, 
no. I'm like, mom, mom, all my friends have them. Like everybody's got them and I won't be cool unless I have this pair of shoes. I'll be an outcast. I'll be on the outside. I'll have to sit at like the bad table at lunch. No one will invite me to their parties. I'll be, I'll be just a weirdo if I don't have these shoes. And my mom's response and every parent's response, well, if all of your friends were jumping off of a cliff, would you jump off too? Right? You know, you know that's, that's the right response, right? And we know the answer to that question is no. But in this situation, like that's a hypothetical situation, that hypothetical situation is right in front of their face right now. This hypothetical has become reality. Everyone around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are committing spiritual suicide. They're bowing not to God. They're giving their hearts over to a false God. And they don't even realize what they're really doing. And so in essence, they're all jumping off a cliff. And you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, I will not. We will not participate in this. Now today, we don't see people bowing to statues. Right? It's not, not in the same way, but idol worship is just as present today as it was back then. Our culture has idols that we're pressed in to bow down to. We're constantly saying, oh, just, just do it, just do it, just do it. Don't worry about your Christian faith. Don't worry about that. Just bow. Give your heart, give your life, give your desires over to this. See, we live in a constant pressure-filled world where we're called or tried to get our heart to trust into other things. People in our day worship their kids. People in our day worship their pets. People in our day worship political leaders. People in our day worship science. People in our day worship money and and materialism. It's everywhere. Let me submit to you this, and this may be something that you might need to think about later on. You might need to write this down in your notes, and you might need to challenge me on this. We worship what we fear. We worship what we fear. Now think about that for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar feared the loss of his kingdom. So he's living in this place of fear, and so what does he want? He wants people to worship what he fears. What we fear drives us so much that we don't even realize it, that we give our heart, we give our mind over to it. Let me ask you this question. In your life, what is of ultimate worth? What is of ultimate, like what is it that you give everything in your life to? that all of your thoughts, all of your time, all of your treasure, all of your talents, all of who you are, are you trying to pursue? Another way of asking that question, if you can't identify what that is, what in your life would bring the greatest hurt if it was gone? That, that, that'll show you what you worship. That'll show you what you fear because you fear losing that. And so you're going to do whatever it takes to keep that which you fear the most. Proverbs 9, 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
What you fear, you worship. What we fear, we worship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To be afraid and to know, hey, I'm not God. I don't have power. I don't have control. I don't have the the ability or the resources to fix all of this. So God, I'm trusting in you. I fear, Lord, and I'm coming to you. In my fear, I'm coming to you because you will supply all of my needs to make, if God is not your ultimate value, if God were taken away for your life and you would not be undone, then you're not worshiping him. God is of greatest value in our lives. And if we don't have him, we have nothing. Do you believe that this morning? Do you, I mean, do you truly believe that this morning? I mean, sometimes we intellectually do that, but then, but then when the rub of life happens, like, like you enter into the crucible of life, you know, that where it's trying to like break you down and really pulverize you and make you nothing, is God still of greatest value in that moment? I hope he is. So first, in order to live a life that honors the Lord, we've got to reject cultural idolatry. Second, we must refuse to compromise. Look with me in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, furious in rage, hmm, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought so that he brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Mm-mm-mm. This be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not. See the power struggle that's going on here? See the fear that's being activated in both of these groups? Nebuchadnezzar's fear is so great that it turns to rage. He's a raging, crazy person now, not in his right mind. And as these three young men refuse to bow, they are refusing to validate his feelings. Do you see that? King says... Bow to me, bow to me. This is your God has to submit to my God. Bow down to my God. They won't. They won't validate it. The pressure increases on them. The pressure is getting greater because right now they're in front of the face of the king before they were distant from the king and now they're right in the king's presence and the king's like, hey, bow. It would have been so easy for them. Right? They're like, okay, 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 guys, hey, how about, we, how about we just like bow a little bit, right? Like, 
Maybe we dab them up. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. We dab up an idol. I, I don't know. But let, let's just give them a little bit. Let's not go all the way down. Let's not, let, let's go a little bit. No, that's not what they said. With faced with fear, faced with death, what did they say? We will not. We won't. They refused to compromise one little bit. And in the refusing to compromise, they were so secure in their faith. They knew the God in whom they believed. They believed that their God was strong enough to deliver them from his hands. Deliver them in life, deliver them in death. They didn't know. Because they even said, even if he doesn't, my God is powerful. Our God is powerful enough to deliver us from your hands. But even if he doesn't, our deliverance is greater because then we'll be with him. So either way, God's going to win. God wins in my life. God wins in my death. Not one little second. The reason these guys wouldn't compromise in the big ways is because they were obedient in the little things. Or you, can't, you can't expect to stand before a pagan king in your faith if your life has been riddled with compromise. You're able to stand before a king when your life has been filled of obedience. Little by little by little. Not making little compromises every single day, but making decisions to be obedient. We clearly know God's laws. We clearly know the pathway that he's given us to life. Remember what Jesus says? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to have an abundant life which doesn't mean you'll be happy. You hear me? The Bible also tells us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There's a battle for your soul that's raging. And we win the battle through obeying God in obedience, in surrender, in sacrifice. When we daily get up on the altar and we say, Lord, here's my life. Like, I don't know. I'm like a dumb sheep. Like, lead me, feed me, guide me, protect me. I'm a dumb sheep. And when we live in obedience, in the small things, that's when you're able, when the true tests of life come, you will not be crushed. But the life full of little compromise here, a little compromise, I'll just bow a little bit. I'll, I'll bow just this one time. In, one, in this one area, when it comes to my sexual purity, about just one time, I'll only take a look. I'll only do it once. Right? When we start saying that, especially when it deals with our sexuality, when it deals with our finances, when it deals with our work, when it deals with what God has clearly spoken to us about, and we start making these little tiny compromises, we set ourselves up for failure. Compromise kills character. Compromise kills character. And 
And these men were men of character because in the small ways they were continually seeking to be obedient. Not perfect, but they continued to seek to be obedient. So when they faced fear, they were able to trust and have faith that their God would take care of them and deliver them in the midst of the great pain. So when you face fear like these guys, choose to obey, especially on the things that God has clearly spoken about, and choose to not compromise. Maybe you're here today and you're like, man, pastor, my life is full of compromise. My life is so full. I have gotten so far away from where I'm supposed to be. I've given in to bowing my heart to other things that promised life that didn't. I want you to know today, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Because in a moment we're going to see just how Jesus delivers us. If your life is full of compromise, the Bible is very, very clear. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Choose to acknowledge the fact where you're at and then in your heart repent means, means instead of going this way, you're turning and you're choosing to go this way. The way that is right, the way that is narrow, the way that God has designed. I know the lure of idolatry is real. I know the pressures are real. But we also have, through Christ in us, we have the power to obey. We have the power to say, I will not. Third today, if we hope to live a life of faith, is that we're called to trust in God's deliverance. Look with me in verse 19. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Hmm. He went from being angry to rage, and now he's furious. Do you see that? Like his fear is like going, it, it, it's, it's like he's allowing the, fa- the, the flame of his fear just be fanned like this. And he's like, I'm losing my freaking mind. Because he's so angry. He's so overwhelmed by it. And then he goes, he was filled with fury. And the expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered that some of the mighty men of his army bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had 
and had no, not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their head was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's commands and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Man, Nebuchadnezzar's rage out of control his fear and lack of ability to control the situation, he loses his mind. His entire demeanor changes. He intensifies the burning of the furnace. Now, this furnace that was there was actually designed to bake the uh, bricks that built uh, part of the Babylonian kingdom. So again, it's, it's, it's not a loss on the, the connection between these two things. The very thing that King Nebuchadnezzar was using to build up his kingdom by firing the bricks was going to be the thing that God uses to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That which was meant for evil, God uses for good. That storyline over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture. Right? So you have like this big, big block thing with a big hole in the top. Um, imagine the... Um, the uh, pizza, California pizza kitchen oven. Imagine that much, much bigger, okay? That, that's what this is kind of like. And so he's so ticked off that he has it burning seven times hotter. He, he has them bound, and the guys that throw them in the fire, they die. Nebuchadnezzar's like, oh, this is gonna be over real quick. Fused about me, I'll show you what happens. You're gonna be done just like that. And to his astonishment, to his amazement, he looks in the fire and he's like, hey guys, we threw three of them in there, right? They're like, oh yeah, king, we sure did. He's like, well, why is there a fourth one in there? Someone else is in there, and why are they not burning? This is not how this works. You throw someone in the fire and they burn up. What in the world is going on? He sees that one of them is a son of the gods. Some, some scholars believe that that is uh, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus himself comes down and shows himself there. Others believe that it, he is uh, an angel or whatever, but he is the, whatever it is, it's God. It's God showing up in the midst of the fire to deliver them. And they come out, they don't even smell like smoke. They don't smell like nothing's wrong with them. Their, their skin is fine. Their clothes are fine. The things that are supposed to be burnt aren't burnt. Everything is okay. And Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges that these men serve the Most High God. He acknowledges God's supreme and holy nature. Remember last week we left off with him acknowledging God. God is at the work, we're going to see this next week, God is at the work after the heart of this king. But he has to bring this king to the end of himself before he can save him. This king has to be brought low. And last week he was brought low in the fact that he sees that he has this troubling dream and he can't do anything about it. And he, he 
communicates to Daniel about his God, and now he makes other references to an understanding of who this is. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Let me be honest for just a moment. God doesn't always deliver in this way. Right? In, in this case, we see an instantaneous deliverance. Has God always instantly delivered you? No. So, so this, is, this is descriptive of what's happening. It's not prescriptive of how it always works. All right? You may do everything right in your life. You may choose not to compromise. You may choose to walk a life of faith. You may stand before a king and he says, bow to me, and you say no, and he throws you into a fiery furnace, and guess what? You might get burned up. We have the history of the martyrs that have given their lives, that have been burned at the stake, that have died for their faith, and that's not to say God doesn't deliver. God doesn't always instantaneously deliver us, but God promises to ultimately always deliver us. He will always, always, ultimately deliver us. So if you're here and you're like, man, I went through some trials and God wasn't there with me, so I'm not gonna believe with God. You're not giving them a chance. See, Jesus, God, was with them through the fire. He could have come down like he did when, um, when Elijah had the big altar there. God could have come down from the sky and, and consumed the altar. God could have come down from the sky and extinguished the flames. But what we see here is that God, even though God is powerful to do it in that way, he doesn't always promise to do it that way either. But he promises to be with us through it. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You know who said that? Jesus. And why do we know that he is with us? Because Jesus, God, became flesh, dwelt among us. Meaning that he knows the pressures that you face. He knew, he experienced the pressures from his family. He experienced the pressures from his culture. He experienced the pressures from the religion of his day, from the, the political powers of his day. He walked in that pressure, pressure just like you and me, and he chose not to bow so that he could become the ultimate deliverer for you and for me. Jesus is with you. Jesus has walked the path that you walk. He knows the fear that you feel. And every single way, Jesus takes his fear back to his father. Remember in the garden before he goes to the cross? He's having a conversation with his father. And fear invades him, his heart. And he says, Lord, if there be any other way, any other way. Because in his humanity, he felt that. He says, God, if there's any other way, do it. But at the end, he says, but not my will be done, but yours. He gave himself up to go to a cross to do the work of saving us from our sins. The confidence that we have is that Jesus has paid it all. Jesus provides us deliverance now, meaning that we are in right relationship with God through our faith in him. 
but also we have the promise of, and the hope of being with him in heaven where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. We will be in right relationship with God forever. And this week as I was just walking with my own time with the Lord, dealing with my own fear, because uh, you, know, you can't preach about fear without having fear like brought into your face, right? That's <laughs> just the way it is. And as I'm walking through a season of fear in my own life, God brought me to this passage, and I love it so much. It was First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, it's a letter. So Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, the context of First of Peter is that God's people have found themselves now in exile. He says that you are an elect exile. Now think about that for a moment. Being elect meaning that God has chosen you to be in exile. He's chosen you to be out of your home country, to be out of your home culture, to be in a foreign land, to be in a hostile land. You are an elect exile. We are elect exiles. God has chosen that right now in all of human history, he's given you life and he's called you and he's elected you to live as a Christian in America. That's God's election in your life. Right? But then he goes on. And as they were facing um, uh, persecution and as they were facing all this, he says, this is all according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's no accident where you're at right now in your life. The season that you're going through, the turmoil that you're going through, the fear that you face, it's no accident because it was from the foreknowledge of God. And it is for or in the sanctification of the, of the Spirit. So the reason that you're in a place of exile right now is for your sanctification. What that means is so that you become more and more like God and less and less like yourself. The bad parts about you, the fear, the sin, the shame, all of that stuff has to be worked out because God wants you to be holy. And sometimes we learn best when we go through difficult times. So we see it's for the foreknowledge of God, for the sanctification, for obedience to Jesus Christ. How do we do this? How do we live in the midst of being an elect exile? Through obedience. Through obedience. We know the good that God has for us to do. We beg him for the power to walk in obedience, and when he does, we praise him. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know if you're going through a season of, of just compromise. I don't even know if, like, if you look yourself in the mirror in the morning, you're like, I don't even know the person that's looking back at me. I can tell you, your response today is the same response that it is every single day. Come back to Jesus. Bring your fear, bring your pain, bring your shame to Jesus. And just lay it before him. Say, Jesus, once again, I come back. This is what I've done. This is what I've become. This is the, these are the idols that I've worshipped. Lord, let me just worship you. 
May you truly be the joy of my hope and my salvation. Maybe, maybe you've lived a life so long and like you, you've forgotten your first love. Remember, remember in your human experience, like your first love? Like your human, not, not God, but your first love. The first person that caught your eye, the first person that you like did your hair up nice for, the first person that you checked your breath for when you talked to them. Remember that person? Right? Like we know that. But in a greater way, sometimes we forget that Jesus is our first love above all of that. And somehow, and sometimes, in some ways, we kind of like, we're like, okay, God, okay, Jesus, I'm no longer enamored by you. I'm no longer enraptured by you. Like, God, bring me back to this place. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. I know God's word is true. I have the testimony of my own life of him being faithful over and over and over and over and over again. I pray you have that same testimony. Especially when he walks, comes to you and he says, I want you to do hard things. I'm going to take you through a season where I'm sanctifying you and it's going to hurt. It's going to be the most painful thing that you walk through and you're like, okay, Jesus, okay, I'm ready. I pray that is our disposition this morning. Let's pray together. Father, oh God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And we thank you for your kindness. Father, I have to believe that there are some in this room right now I feel like they're facing giants. Or maybe they're facing the pressure to bow. God, my prayer is that your word would be true in their life right now. That you would give them an overwhelming sense of peace and in this place of fear, give them the ability just to trust and to come to you and allow you to be their ever-present help, their refuge, their strong tower. God, in these moments as we sing this closing song, Father, would you continue to move in our hearts, bring conviction where it's needed, encouragement where it's needed, all for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.